Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. Whenever I'm really enjoying a TV show, I watch the TV show, obviously. But then I seek out Joanna Robinson from The Ringer because she writes and podcasts about this stuff better than anyone else. She's my favorite. But Joanna is not just a TV person. She also loves herself some movies. She also loves Marvel movies in particular, which is my long windup to say Joanna Robinson has co-written a new book. It's called MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. Welcome back, Joanna. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. I love talking to you about dragons and superheroes and sort of drag you down into the genre uh, dirt with me, Peter. I don't like the implication that I'm above the genre <laughs> dirt. I love genre stuff, but I am often confused by it, which is which is way in particular I wanted to talk to you about, about Marvel because we talk a lot about the business of Marvel and the business of Disney. And occasionally I think I tend to sort of forget why people like the stuff. And I wanted to talk to you about that. But but tell me what the book is supposed to be. Is it for is it for hardcore Marvel fans or people who don't spend a lot of time thinking about Marvel? Is it for businessy people? This is the question I was asking the entire time we were writing the book is Perfect. I was having this sort of identity crisis of who is this book for is constantly what I was asking my co-authors. And eventually what we decided maybe for our own peace of mind was that it's for everyone. I know that sounds like a really uh, slick sales tactic, but I really do think so. There's definitely juicy tidbits in here for people who think they already know everything about Marvel. I have heard that from a number of people who thought they knew everything about Marvel on their own. There was so much in here I didn't know. So you love to hear that when you're an author. So uh, check on that department. If you are a Marvel skeptic, if you think Marvel is ruining Hollywood, if you or if you think Marvel is having a big stumble in 2023 and you're curious as to why, I think there's a lot of stuff in there for how did they take over this industry? I like a film industry book. There's definitely business for the business minded. There's definitely a business book in there because we've got chapters on their collaboration with China and how that impacts the global box office. Or we've got the long-running battle between New York Marvel Entertainment and West Coast Marvel Studios. And then for people who don't know anything at all, it really is like a soup to nuts sort of examination of the whole phenomena. So I really do like to think there's something for everyone. And what helps me sell that at the end of the day is the fact that, you know, I wrote this with two other people, Dave Gonzalez, Gavin Edwards. Gavin is a very seasoned um, writer. And when we put all the pieces together, I did all the interviews, Dave did a lot of the research, we all wrote it together. But Gavin gave it this really lively page turnery like tone that I've heard from a ton of people, they just zipped through the book that it was fun for them to read, which again, you love to hear it as an author. Many people are saying, Peter, that this book is quite fun. Many people are saying, and it's for everyone. So what more could you want in a book, honestly? All right. We'll just end the podcast there. Go buy yeah, the book. Done. Joanna Happy. We are talking roughly, though, just to, to put this in context, this is sort of the the era in movie making that kicks off with Iron Man, which was made before Marvel was acquired by Disney. And then obviously Disney acquires Marvel and then changes culture, changes the movie business. Remind so. us. These people did not make the first superhero movies. They didn't even make the first modern superhero movies. Right. Why 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 is Marvel such a big 
deal in modern movie making? There's a couple elements at play here. Iron Man, 2008's Iron Man is not even the first Marvel superhero movie, right? There's You have great films like Blade. That's a Marvel movie that Marvel Studios didn't exist to make. You've got less well-received movies like Ben Affleck's Daredevil or the spinoff Elektra. You know, you've got the X-Men at Fox. You've got Spider-Man at Sony. All of that predates Marvel Studios existing. But Mm -hmm. at a certain point, and believe it or not, it all happened at Mar-a-Lago, there was a conversation between someone named David Maisel and someone named Ike Perlmutter, who's the head of Marvel uh, Entertainment at the time, the whole Marvel at the time, saying, hey, what if we made our own movies, right? What if we form our own studio and instead of licensing out our characters to other people to either make more money than we're making off of our own characters or fumbling in a way that it Mm -hmm. sort of damages the brand, why don't we take control, take all the money, let's do that. So a comic book company being their own studio is something that's like somewhat replicated with DC over at Warner Brothers, but not quite in the same way. And then that interconnected universe is, of course, Marvel's calling card into the world of franchising that they say, okay, what if we make Iron Man and we're going to make Donnie, Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man, Edward Norton is a Hulk, but guess what? They're going to be related. And then there's going to be a Thor movie and a Captain America movie. Then we're going to make Avengers. And it all becomes sort of must-see TV to steal from NBC in the 90s, and you have to watch everything, and then it becomes this sort of interconnected, can't-miss-a-single-installment, ongoing soap opera. And and so that that interconnectedness, that really ramps up after Bob Iger has bought Marvel and then really juices it up, right? Well, I mean, the Avengers as a concept existed before Disney. Right, right. This was sort of in motion, but it wasn't going to happen without Disney's clout and... It definitely would have been would not have been as successful without Disney as like a distributing partner and then as the full muscle backing them for sure. So my question is, why does Marvel matter? And it matter, and you sort of get to well, all the stories are interconnected, and that matters. And and I've heard people say that for many years, and I understand it. But I also I'm always feel a little unsatisfied with that answer because I know there is a subset of moviegoers who are also big comics fans and Mm -hmm. Marvel's fans who understand the connections and the characters and also what's in the movie versus what's in, you know, issue 68 of whatever the comic series is. And I've seen a lot of the movies, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, I like comics, but I'm, I'm not that person. I can't imagine them looking around the theater that the majority of people in the theater are those hardcore fans who know all the stories. And so I just I'm still sort of unsatisfied about why these things took off in a way that other comics movies didn't. Is it just that there is enough of those fans that guarantee sort of a base level success for all the movies or did they tap into something? I mean, I can't like I I remember taking people who are older than me um, (laughs) to see the last the last two Avengers movies. Right. Yeah. And they definitely had not watched the 16 prior to that. Sure. And they could follow along. They got the general idea what was happening. So why why did it work for so many people? Yeah, I think the key to that, the key figure throughout all of this, uh, the soup to nuts Marvel stories is. Kevin Feige, head of Marvel Studios. And something that 
you know, we really get into in the book is this concept of Kevin not being a comic book guy. He did not grow up collecting comics deep into the comic book world. He's a blockbuster cinema guy. He grew up, he loved Richard Donner's Superman movie, right? But because it was a big sort of blockbuster, he loved Back to the Future. He loves mm-hmm. all things Spielberg. Like that's who he was growing up. There's the kind some- of movies that Hollywood made Right. All the time. All the time. But they and weren't necessarily connected to IP. Some of them were, but some of them weren't. Exactly. And so basically what he does is he like kind of skins these Marvel movies. He, they're secretly just these seventy late 70s, 80s, early 90s blockbusters that he grew up loving. There's some apocryphal story about him skipping his prom to be go line up for Back to the Future or something like that. You know, like that's who Kevin Feige was. And once he got involved in Marvel at a sort of lower sort of assistant level through he goes to work for Richard Donner, who made Superman, Lauren Schuler Donner. He goes in through that door into this world. He studies and he learns comic books and he just and now he knows them better than almost anyone else. But that's not how he grew up. And so what that allows him to do, I believe, is make a film that is friendly to you or people who are even more casual than you are when it comes to comic book knowledge, because he's not looking at it from like too deep inside the culture. He's Mm -hmm. looking at it from the outside, from like a blockbuster point of view, from a character point of view. And I think that's a real key thing for Marvel. You care in in their best examples. You care, you get emotionally invested in the likes of Steve Rogers or Tony Stark um, or Natasha or Clint or all these characters. And it sets the story apart from some of these other stories that wind up just being CGI soup at the end of the day because you don't have a human or human-esque character to emotionally latch onto. So is Kevin Feige more important than the Marvel IP itself? Because I, I one of the so. stories about Marvel, right, is that a lot of these, which, which became huge, huge movie characters, right, were not major comic book characters. A lot of them are subsidiary characters. Yeah, they had sold off, you know, I mentioned earlier that Fox had X-Men and Sony had Spider-Man, you know, back in the earlier days of Marvel Comics when they're trying to dig out of bankruptcy in the 90s, they start licensing their characters off to all these other studios. And that means when Marvel Studios itself, after this luncheon at Mar-a-Lago, after when they start to establish their studios, they have what all the headlines screamed at the time, like the B-list, the B-list heroes, like Iron Man. Everyone's like, who's ever heard of Iron Man? Thor, at the time, right? You know, Thor, Captain America. Who are these? Who are these? Uh, Captain America is a silly, silly Boy Scout with you know wings on his helmet. You know, Thor is this weird Shakespearean um, Norse god, and Tony Stark in the comics was a sort of alcoholic, abusive, you know, just strange character necessarily to latch onto. But a reason they started with Tony Stark, not just because. They didn't have every single character in their arsenal to start with, but they tested these characters with kids and the kids loved the Iron Man toy. They loved that. So from a toy making point of view, which is a big part of Ike Perlmutter and his legacy at Marvel, they were like, this is a hit. Iron Man's going to be a hit because the kids love that action figure. And, we're and that was there. the old way of thinking about those blockbuster movies that definitely I remember from being a kid, right? You went and saw Star Wars and then you or really your parents spent um, several mortgages acquiring toys connected <laughs> yeah. to that. And that was, and I worked at a toy store for a while and the idea was 
was the toy rollout always accompanied the movie, and that was sort of where the if if the if the people were smart, that's where they were really going to cash in. Yeah, and for a while, Marvel Comics was really content to make that their profit from these other movies that they had farmed out to other people. So Fox casts Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, makes all these X-Men movies, and they say, okay, well, we get all the toy sales. Or if you think back to the 90s, this is my entry was sort of X-Men the Animated Series, which was a big deal in the 90s. The plot lines of those uh, stories were dictated by what toys they wanted to make, right. uh, you know, in conjunction. That's classic Saturday morning cartoon logic. But I think that bleed definitely bleeds into at least early MCU is that toyetic, toy-minded approach to, to storytelling. Toyetic is an awesome word. I'm going to use that again. So <laughs> Kevin Feige is instrumental to Disney and Marvel's success in the movies. Again, like we've said, there's other people who've got access to movie characters and and try uh, to cartoon superhero characters, to superhero characters, superheroes, and turn them into movies with with varying degrees of success. None of them nearly as successful as as Marvel. And not original to point this out, DC has now owned by Discovery Warner Brothers mm-hmm. has you know better known characters obviously batman and superman and they for a while they were trying to sort of fashion those characters into their version of the dcu yeah why did that not work compared to marvel so i think the moment that you know christopher nolan is making these incredibly successful batman movies they're um, standalone that just there's just Batman and related just Batman Just Batman changes the way that, you know, the Oscar best picture category works, like uh, seismic for the culture. That's the environment that Marvel is launching. You know, so they're sort of running to catch up to Nolan and what he's doing over Warner Brothers with like how important culturally a superhero story can be. So they start chasing that a little bit. But something that Feige and and, you know, he would say he would not take the credit by himself. So I want to be careful with that. There's a lot mm-hmm. of other people at Marvel doing making great moves. But he likes to talk about, first of all, he's very diplomatic. So he would never say that anyone else had failed. That's not something that he would ever say on the record. But he would say, walk before you run. And when you look at early Marvel, like we said, you get an Iron Man movie, a Hulk movie. You get another Iron Man movie. You get a Captain America movie. You get a Thor movie. Then you get Avengers. Zack Snyder, for all his great virtues and all his um, myriad uh, potential sins, like he started with Man of Steel, Henry Cavill is Superman. He wanted to make another Superman movie. And they said, no, let's bring Batman. Let's go. Let's go. We got to catch up to Marvel. Now Marvel has outpaced us. Let's hit the gas. We got to accelerate. We have to we have to we have to do what they're doing. Justice League. We have to get to Justice League first. We're not going to bother introducing the Flash to you first. We're not going to bother Aquaman, Cyborg, all these characters. They're just going to be there and everyone will catch up. And it was just sort of a, I think they fumbled the ball on that franchise because of their desperation to catch up now to what Marvel was doing when Marvel did a slow and steady trickle at the beginning of their franchising. So I think that's, among other things, that's a big uh, misstep that DC Because the other thing you would hear is, well, DC is too serious and gray and grimy and Marvel is intentionally more colorful and poppy and fun. I mean... It sort of makes sense to me, although on the other hand, they're still kind of all the same stuff to me. It's still men in tights doing and then with CGI battles. Do, do you think, think the tone really matters or comes through that that difference? 
I think the tone isn't nothing, but I think you can have something like the first Wonder Woman movie, which was a huge hit, and that has like a, a lightness of tone to it. So I don't think you're without sort of being as maybe MCU bubbly as some of uh, the Marvel install Disney installments. So I think you can have definitely have the DC characters and you can have a grittier like DC as comics have always been grittier than Marvel comics. So you can have that grit without getting into to quote Will Arnett as Lego Batman, like the darkness, no parents yeah. sort of like really, <laughs> really dark um, side of, of DC, you know, and so Tone matters, and definitely Marvel very intentionally, you know, um, Blade was kind of hard edge. Uh, Deadpool, Deadpool, who is a Marvel character over at Fox, that's, you know, that's a for more adult audiences. And, and MCU, the MCU very intentionally said, let's try to hit all quadrants. Let's make it something kids and adults can watch together. Absolutely, that was on their plan. I don't think, like, I don't, that's not even, like, necessarily a Disney mandate. For Marvel, that was something that was on Marvel's mind. Again, I think from a toyetic point of view, from the start when they made their movies. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach. And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And we're back. Let's talk more about, about the Disneyification of this. We talk about Kevin Feige, how important he is to all this. Bob Iger, who has been the CEO of Disney for forever with a quick, quick, quick pit stop. Yeah. Um, and now he's unretired himself. When he came on to to run Disney, was not considered a, a creative executive, and now, and now in the telling is considered a creative executive. He considers himself a creative executive. What what kind of role did he have in shaping the overall Marvel universe and specific movies? Is he weighing in? Is he giving Kevin Feige notes about you know someone about dialogue or or costumes? In the book, the what we've discovered through all the interviews that we did is that the main sort of given Kevin Feige notes, oppressive overlord type of role belonged to Ike Perlmutter, who was Marvel East Coast. Which, again, was originally the comic book company that he right. bought. And then so sold. he's over on the East Coast. There's something called the Creative Committee that's formed out of Marvel Entertainment in New York. And once Iron Man's a smash a hit... Uh, and they understand that this is going to be a thing. Then they form the creative committee. And there's a few members on the creative, one member in particular who sort of gets roasted, especially in our book, um, who start giving uh, some increasingly ridiculous notes. And some of their comments are two of my favorites, all time favorites are um, telling James Gunn that nobody wants a sort of 70s uh, soundtrack to Guardians of the Galaxy. Nobody wants to listen to that music, right? And and the, and the soundtrack of Guardians of the Galaxy is one of its fans love that thing. Yeah. It was it was a best-selling record. Or with Captain America Civil War, which is the movie where, if you recall, all the heroes are lined up facing each other on an airport tarmac and they go yes. to battle. Marvel in New York says, who wants to watch heroes fight each other? Everyone. Everyone. 
Everyone in the world wants to write that. You know, so have you so ever I, been a kid? Of course, you want Spider Man to fight Batman. That's you the smash whole point. your action figures together. Yes. That's what you do, Marvel East Coast. So that was the battle of control that uh, dominated the first few phases of Marvel. And Iger was actually whether or not he likes to fancy himself a creative exec. What Iger's superpower is in this Marvel story, at least, is relationships, right, and managing relationships and and sort of trying to make broker peace between East Coast, West Coast Marvel, and then eventually cut East Coast Marvel out and say, Kevin has made us conservatively a gajillion dollars. So guess what? Kevin gets to call Mm -hmm. the shots at Marvel. And when they first bought Marvel, their whole pitch to Marvel was, this is going to be like Pixar. We left Pixar alone creatively. We'll leave you alone creatively. Like, we want to help you, want to boost you. We don't want to control you. We're here to, we, you know, we want to expand our brand beyond princesses. We want the, uh, you know, the young male market, you know, and that's why they acquire Lucasfilm, Marvel, et cetera. But we will not strangle you creatively. That's not, that has never been Disney's role in all of this. So even prior to the the we can talk about whether it's a lull or a descent or whatever it is whatever Marvel's going through now I call there it the, was wo- the wobble the wobble so yeah sort of see where you're headed there but but prior to that there was still a pretty significant at least loud group of people saying hey these Marvel movies that make a gazillion dollars they're also the worst possible thing mm-hmm. for art for culture for our industry you know it's there's nothing wrong with comic book movies but we can't only make comic book movies and you love them obviously but you love all sorts of stuff what do you make of that critique that they were sort of crowding out the cultural and business landscape right the um Marty Scorsese, Francis uh-huh. Ford Coppola, et cetera, et cetera. You're talking about, you know, Martin Scorsese in particular had comments saying that it's not real cinema. And I, th- I think that's a silly debate. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, certainly open to, like, isolated. there should be other things in theaters. And I wholly agree. Like, to your point, I, I do love superhero cinema. I, lo- I, I love the good ones, right? That's, it's not everyone, but mm-hmm. I love the good ones. And I love thinking about how this Marvel interconnected universe changed the way that we think about storytelling. It's kind of bringing television into the movie theater to be like, here's an episode, here's an episode, here's an episode you got to watch. So from a, I've studied Hollywood my whole life. This is a really interesting story to me, but I wholeheartedly agree. I I miss um, the variety of, of cinema we used to get. And is that wholly Marvel's fault? I would not say so because what it's reflective of is how cinema going has just changed. How people go to the movies less and less, how people stay at home and watch, you know, on their big screen with their surround sound mm-hmm. so they don't have to pay for a babysitter, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that people have been perseverating. But it's over. all intertwined, right? They're making those Marvel movies because they know it's one of the few things that people will get go people to see in a movie. Get butts and seats, right? And so um once the window narrows to we're only watching a couple movies a year. And then, yeah, we're only going to watch the Marvel movies because, A, you can't miss a single one. You got to watch them all. And, B, it'll feel like our dollars are going somewhere because we can see them in the big, loud CGI booms, you know. And that and that goes for other things as well. Oppenheimer, to to bring a good example from this year. Dune, um, even though that ha- came out during the pandemic, you know, I, I was packed into an IMAX theater with my mask on mm-hmm. to watch Dune, you know. Like, there are certain big spectacle things that you feel like you have to see in a cinema or you're not really seeing them. I think it's heartbreaking what has happened in... Uh, our film going habits. I miss 
I often talk about missing the monoculture. I miss when we were all watching not just superhero movies, but like, you know, all kinds of movies that we all watched together and then we could all talk about and have the same shared cultural uh, references. But and I thought that was going to be forever when I was growing up. And it turns out that was just like a phase of our culture. And now we're in a different thing where, say, memes or, you know, dep depressingly to me, memes or TikToks or some other things mm -hmm. that becomes the monoculture. So it's connected to Marvel, but it's not as if Marvel muscled out all these things in a sort of supervillain kind of way. Yeah, know? I mean, I guess the other thing I'd add to that is that Iger specifically, when he took over at Disney, said, you know, we make all kinds of movies and we're going to stop doing that. We're only going to make giant tentpole movies. Mm -hmm. Many of them are going to be Marvel movies. Some will be Locust film, but whatever they are, we're not taking risks on things people don't know about. And we're only going to try to make movies that only are considered successes if they're like a billion dollars in box office. Do you ever fire up an old movie and um, the Touchstone logo mm -hmm. comes across the mm -hmm. bottom, which was, you know, Disney brand. And then you watch the movie and you're like, I cannot believe this was a Disney movie. Yep. You know, like it's, it was it's for adults. wild. Yeah, yeah. Your term for what Marvel is in right now is the wobble. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of different things going on at the same time, I think. So they were on this run with the Avengers, which ended right around the pandemic, right before the pandemic. Pandemic changes everything. They also launched Disney Plus, and so a lot of Marvel stuff starts showing up on TV for streaming. It's supposed to be connected to the MCU. And then eventually some of the Marvel movies come out after this, and some do okay um, by Marvel standards. Some are flops. A lot of them are, are critically reviled. Unpack sort of what's happening there, and, and are those just three random things happening at the same time, or are they all connected? I think, unfortunately for Marvel, post-Endgame was a really critical moment for them because they lost some of their heavy hitters. Uh, in their stars. Their stars. and um, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth. Those Chris guys Evans. were all signed on for long deals, and now yeah. they're no longer Scarlett Johansson, Chris Evans, and Downey all decide to leave. Uh, Scarlett, Scarlett is one more movie, but like they're effectively exiting. That's... The seniors graduating. That's the mm -hmm. varsity team. They're they're moving on. And what had happened was Marvel had seeded a number of players in to sort of rise up and take their place. They knew that was coming. They were going to keep these people forever. Um, and part of the premise, the conventional wisdoms of, of modern stardom, right, is that Iron Man is more important than Robert Downey Jr. And then, that's what we don't that. have stars now because it's the costumes. Right. Evan said that in a recent GQ interview. He was like, yeah, Captain America is way more famous than Chris Evans is. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what was interesting about what Marvel did is they hired Downey, who was more notorious than he was famous at the time that they hired him. But they hired Downey. And then when they make Iron Man 2, Downey's like, OK, uh, a lot more money, please. And they hired Edward Norton who was uh, had a lot of prestige coming off of like yes. American History X. Um, but he was a huge problem. He's like one of the most uh, contentious relationships ever in Marvel's history is between Marvel and Edward Norton. And so after that happens, they're like, what if we hire these Chris's who aren't really anyone and we'll make them and we'll mold them into something, right? Mm -hmm. So that's when you get Evans and Hemsworth, et cetera. But the point being, they, they hire these other people like Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange, Paul Rudd as, as Ant-Man, and then really very crucially to their future, Chadwick Boseman in Black Panther, Brie Larson for Captain Marvel, Tom so Holland far, so is their good. new Spider-Man, right? And like... That's the plan. And on paper, that seems like a great plan, right? They're like, we're, we got this. They're mm -hmm. going to leave. Here's the new stars. 
I don't think they saw what happened to Captain Marvel and Brie Larson coming in terms of this minority toxic fandom being so um Spell that out. I think a lot of people missed missed what happened. Absolutely. Happy to spell it out. Um, To be clear, Captain Marvel, the Brie Larson-fronted solo adventure, made over a billion dollars. That is a successful film. But what is also true is that it got review bombed by a bunch of people who were upset that a woman was leading a superhero film. That and we've seen those same trolls attack uh, Star Wars. uh, Right. When they have got a non-white guy there, they freak out. Um, And so Brie herself has said in interviews that made her uncertain about her future with Marvel. She's like, why should I put my, why should Mm -hmm. I put up with this essentially? You know, why do I, why would I want to do that? Chadwick Boseman passes away. That is tragic on a number of levels. And, and, you know, low down on the list of tragedies is the fact that like Marvel's like, oh no, we had sort of considered him a linchpin of the franchise going forward. Dr. Strange lands, Ant-Man lands. It doesn't feel the same anymore. And so this is all 2019 is when Endgame comes out. To your point, COVID hits us all in 2020. So like Black Widow comes out and it's COVID. Eternals comes out, it's COVID. Then the Disney Plus stuff, which Iger left Disney and a lot of people blamed the diminishment of the brand via the Disney Plus flooding on Bob Chapek, but it was Iger's plan before that he was left his Disney. thing. That was he his said, yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna launch this new streaming service with Marvel stuff. We're gonna make a ton of it. Let's put that in motion. And then he and then he walked away from and it. Then it's he all walked his away. plan. And then he came back and he was like, after he re- replaced his own replacement, he said like, oh, we need to focus on yeah. doing less and higher quality as if he was not who the one thought who this was a good idea, opened me. the taps in the first place. Exactly. So, um, you know, I, I think that's been bigger even than the pandemic is this idea that the Marvel studios model which throughout the book you can see them hone it and develop it really relies to our earlier conversation on feige as this central creative figure this almost director producer Mm -hmm. over all of these stories he can do that when they're putting two max three movies out a year but can you do that when you're making three or four movies a year plus three or four tv shows spread the peanut butter too thin. Yeah, Isn't too much bread, not enough peanut butter. So, you know. Silicon Valley reference from the Yahoo yeah. days. Yeah, but yeah. So, so, because Feige is the consistent thing, right? Because you were mentioning, well, they, you know, they moved to the second tier of actors, but a lot of those movies that you were mentioning, that those, act, you know, obviously Black Panther, mm-hmm. the first Ant-Man, those were all super successful movies on their own. Yes. With, with again, characters that were not major characters, with people that you didn't associate. So it seemed like the plan was working just fine then it really is just the the volume. The volume and just, you know, like Wakanda Forever, there has a lot to go, you know, a lot going for it, but it's missing a Mm -hmm. key component that a lot of people responded to in the first Black Panther movie, namely Chadwick Boseman. It has been years and years and years, and we're about to get The Marvels, which is the next Brie Larson-led film, but it's been a long time since we watched Captain Marvel, you know? Ant-Man Quantumania, unfortunately, that's a movie that really was a tipping point um, with the fans at the beginning of this year, because, like, what happened with the Eternals... What happened with Shang Chi? People were like, "Yeah, maybe not top tier, but I'm I'm still hanging with Marvel." Uh, Love Thor: Love and Thunder. People were a little curious about, but when Quantum Mania came out at the beginning of the years, that felt like a real turning of the tide of people saying, "Are these movies 
good anymore. And then Guardians 3 comes out and a lot of people like it. So that's why I call it the wobble because I don't think it's been just a steep decline downhill. I think it's been inconsistent. Whereas before, however you felt about Marvel movies, you at least pretty much they were knew all kind of working. Yeah, they were all kind of working. You know, you could debate whether it was great art or not, but people like them, fans like consistent, them. right? And you know? and now yeah. some of them like have not worked critically. Right. Some of them have definitely not worked financially. So, how much of this do you think is also just a natural like, hey, there was a thing that a lot of us liked for a long time, but we're not frozen in amber. Things move on, tastes change, mm-hmm. and maybe just our interest in Marvel characters as a society as a whole is we're just kind of tapped out. Is this something that that you know? If, Bob Iger and Kevin Feige can figure out, or do you think that just maybe it runs its course? I remember back in, I think it was 2018, I was talking to John Favreau about the Marvel phenomenon and about, about the criticisms that you were raising earlier about, you know, um, is Marvel ruining Hollywood? And he brought up the Westerns and how for mm-hmm. decades in Hollywood, the Westerns were sort of the dominant genre and you couldn't throw a stone without hitting another Western. And, uh, you know, he was like, superhero stories right now are the Westerns. And he was like, and that will end at some point. The reason I'm hesitant to call it the end is we've been hearing the term superhero fatigue, Mm -hmm. I would say, for five to seven years, you know, like very early. Um, It's like the term. Yeah. But a lot of it was like critics saying that. And the audience is like, we're not fatigued at all. We're in a different place entirely. I completely agree with you. But it, it reminds me of John Landgraf coining peak tv and we're Mm -hmm. still peaking right so many years later right so okay there is a difference now between how the audience feels versus how the audience felt before and that's very crucial your question is can we turn this ship around plenty of people are like do we want to turn the ship around um and i think a couple things need to happen firstly i think they need to make less as bob Iger said who who brought all this content in here like let's let's do less um so do less Make it better, stronger, further, faster, Mm -hmm. but do less. And then also the complaint that I hear a lot from casual Marvel fans is it now feels like there's too much homework. And the do less uh, is part of that, uh, a partial solution. But I think what they're heading towards, not to get, not to like turn all your listeners to sleep and get super nerdy, but um, there's a comic book event called Secret Wars and that's mm-hmm. something that they're planning to do in the future. And that might wind up being a soft reset for the whole universe. So you don't need to feel like you have to watch all of the movies and all the TV shows in order to understand what the heck is going on. And it is funny. It. My producer, Jelani, is listening to this. Um, you know, as as new Marvel product comes out, and we're like, do we want to talk about this show or this movie? And sometimes I'll say, Jelani, is this, you're, you're really into this. Is this important? And uh, so there's something with Samuel Jackson that's on Mar- streaming now or uh, ran Secret around invasion. on Disney Plus. Yeah. Secret yeah. Invasion goes, well, it's going to be connected to Secret. And I just clicked off. I'm like, I cannot believe <laughs> that. Like, it's fine if you want to have the plot, but like asking me to engage in it because there's going to be some payoff X number of years and a dozen movies down the road. Well, like, no, just tell me it's a good movie and then I'll watch it. Here's the deal with Secret Invasion. I'm not saying you got to stay tuned because, or you have to watch everything so you can understand Secret Invasion. Mm -hmm. Secret Wars, which is what they're hoping in the future is going to be sort of their version Mm -hmm. of Avengers Endgame. They're going to bring in a bunch of characters that those of us who have been here for a long time are very familiar with. So, you know, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man or Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. There's going to be something that's going to feel familiar to Mm -hmm. everyone at every level. And that's going to feel potentially 
worth tuning in for more so than me promising you, Peter, that the storyline is going to be interesting. They're going to have some flashy lure for you in the cast. And then the hope is that fallout of that quote unquote event is a new Marvel that we can all come into fresh if we decide we want to. Or Mm -hmm. if, if the superhero era is over, what an incredible run. And that's why, I mean, not to get too nitty gritty on the, on the book title front, but the book title that uh, it was originally MCU, the rise of Marvel studios. And it was in early 2023 when the wobble felt more and more Mm -hmm. inevitable that we changed it to the reign of Marvel studios, which is not the rise and fall of Marvel studios necessarily. I'm not ready to call it DOA, but it's like, this is a this is a moment in time when Marvel has supremacy in Hollywood. Is it over? We're not sure, but it's certainly like you cannot deny that this was their reign, you know? Oh, this is so helpful. So useful. Thank you. I'm not going to let you go without pivoting quickly into TV. You mentioned peak TV. So yeah. I got two questions for you. What what are you sure. watching right now? Yeah. That's great that I should watch. Do you watch Reservation Dogs? No, I know I'm supposed to. Okay. Does that sound like too much homework? I mean, Reservation no, Dogs no. is incredible. Uh, what we do in the shadows, the FX comedy. Yes. I lo- Speaking yes. of John Landgraf yes. and Peak TV, like I just, I love what FX does. They've got a lot of great stuff on the horizon. There's a new season of Fargo coming. They're doing Shogun the following year. FX did not pay me to say any of this, okay. even though they are owned by Disney. But I, I think keep an eye I, on FX. I'm, def- and what I'm definitely on FX. Uh, they, what we do in the shadows, we're in, we're like midway through season three. I can't recommend it. So enough. good. Um, it's super great. Uh, it's a comedy, by the way. And then I'm wondering how you think both the you know we're, we've we've solved the writer strike. We meeting Hollywood. Uh, the actor strike is supposed to get solved relatively soon. Yeah. Those things are going to happen. To the writers and actors' credit, they're going to receive, they're going to get paid more than they would have to make those. That means costs go up. And then concurrently, we're also, for other reasons, have reached, seem to have reached the end of peak TV era, that a lot of the companies that were funding this stuff saying, we're no longer going to make as much stuff. And mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to flood our streaming platforms with this stuff. And we're, re- we're going to make less and we're going to sort of parcel it out less. So as a TV consumer, yeah. Do you imagine you're going to feel that pullback in a couple of years? Right now, there's just a lot of stuff that has to get finished and is going to come out. But when yeah. do you do, do you think you'll feel it? And, and if so, when would that show up? 2025, I think. 2024 is going to be really interesting because we're going to feel a little stutter of the work stoppage that happened this year. So we're going to feel like a little stutter in content and then a, like a flood of content. Oh, kind of yeah. like post-pandemic, right? This stuff yeah. is supposed to come out and now yeah. here it is. Um, so 2024 is going to be a, a very unusual year for content. And then I think 2025 is when we're going to start to see it ease back. And, you know, I am of two minds always about peak TV. And I, again, preferred it when there were just a few great things that we were all watching together. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, what peak TV and the flood of content, the streaming wars has brought in is just a ton of voices that might not have had a show made otherwise and so there's a part of me that's sad to see that era ending if that's what what is happening what i'm hopeful is that we'll take lessons from that time and ensure that in the future as things start to contract as i'm sure certain streaming services collapse into each other are consumed by each other because all of them are operating at a loss at this point, right? So, you know, if they try to get together a, a profitable model that they keep in mind that that 
speaking of reservation dogs, mm-hmm. uh, what we do in the shadows, the diversity of voices stays in the mix going forward. You know? Yeah, related to that, Roy Price, who ran Amazon Studios when it first launched, had a New York Times op-ed a week or so ago and said, it's not just that they're going to make less shows, it's that the stuff that was kind of really provocative and interesting and also, by the way, appealed to a coastal audience and and coastal tastemakers, you know, going all the way back to like early HBO originals and the Larry mm. uh, Larry Sanders show. You're going to see less of that because there's just going to be less tolerance for risk. So not only will you see fewer shows, but you're going to see more shows in the uh, the Yellowstone genre where like you know some people like a lot of people like it nothing right. wrong with it but like it's not it's not really that you know it's not really going to blow your mind and it's cowboy stories yeah um you've seen it before yeah i mean i i, I would push back on that except i don't know what the future of hbo is under zaslov mm-hmm. you know like i know that casey bloys of course is someone that we can trust to continue to make really interesting programming but i don't know what his new yep restrictions are in the zaslov era that being said you know Back before HBO Max or Max, whatever you ever want to call it, before the streaming platform, HBO was making far fewer. HBO was the like curated. We're only making three shows max at a time, bangers only. You know, and those movie, those shows were pushing at the boundaries of content. So that I mean, that's that's the ideal model of course bangers only model everyone everyone yeah. else follow suit bang make only good great stuff uh, why don't we just every... make hits yeah right? how about how about that that can't be hard right um that's always my motto just do good stuff peter right. um joanna robinson you're, you're the good stuff thank you for coming on you're the good stuff thanks so much for having me thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free that's zero dollars still the same Thanks to Travis and Jelani for editing the show, producing the show, and thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.